Phoenix Founders Podcast is sponsored by Arizona Venture Development Corp. AVC invests in early stage tech startups and funds across multiple sectors, including software, while providing access to equity capital for underrepresented founders and communities in Arizona. You're listening to the Phoenix Founders Podcast, where we talk with remarkable founders who are making Phoenix a top software city. We're digging into the highs and lows of company building and getting a little vulnerable to find out what makes these founders keep going. So I've known Gabe for probably 15 years. I met him in the early 2010s when he had started Brushfire, which then became Virtuous. And I have to say, he is so different now. He's just evolved into this. I mean, not that he wasn't a great founder then, but he's such a like wise, mature founder now is the best way to describe it. I was so impressed when we talked to him. I met Gabe maybe four and a half years ago, and in the first few minutes of our conversation, he, I said, hey, tell me a little bit about Virtuous. And he starts using the math of his business to tell me about their progress, which I'm a sucker for somebody who, sure. who always starts telling me about that. But then also, he told me about why he cares so much about this to help nonprofits be able to raise more money and, and increase more generosity in the world. So he's about as purpose-driven as it gets for me. Absolutely. So that was something that stood out to me that I really loved about our, our conversation. And to your point, it's been fun to be on his board and be an investor in his company and see the maturity. The other thing that I would say in connection with the expansion of his maturity, like from a business maturity standpoint, is the expansion of his ambition. So he is building something big and meaningful here in Phoenix, and he is all about increasing generosity in, uh, in the world. And so that, that company has potential public company profile here, and it's just an incredible success story here in Phoenix. Absolutely, and he created a category, which is really hard to do. Super hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, responsive fundraising, mm-hmm. and, and they've been so thoughtful about it probably as thoughtful as any any company I've been around to, uh, on category creation. And of course, he's baked generosity into the culture of the business, yes. which is amazing. And I hope we see that spill out into the community. Preach. Preach. Gabe's great. And an ultra runner, which I had no idea. Another example of a Phoenix founder. Endurance. It's all about endurance for Gabe. I love it. All right, we're back on the podcast with Gabe Cooper. Gabe, welcome to the Phoenix Founders Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to have you. Uh, I've known Gabe for a long time. I was an early investor, proud early investor on the board. It's been so fun to watch Gabe build an amazing company here in Phoenix. Gabe, tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about uh, what is Virtuous and then why you started the company. Yeah, absolutely. So Virtuous is a CRM and marketing tools, software for nonprofits. So we help nonprofits better connect with their donors so they can increase generosity. Um, so if, if you're familiar with HubSpot, it's like HubSpot for nonprofits is the easiest shorthand for people outside of our space. Um, the why is I kind of developed a passion for generosity a decade ago and just realized that when people give to nonprofits, they're able to create this amazing impact in the world, but also something in the giver, the person who donates shifts and they become less focused on themselves and more focused on their neighbor, which in the world we live in, which is sometimes a little bit selfish and polarized. I thought that was pretty special. Um, But what we saw is in the nonprofit space, nonprofits um, have a hard time building personal relationships with their donors and inspiring generosity. Most nonprofits are doing 
marketing, like 1950s style marketing, where they send the same letter to every single person. And that drove us crazy. And so we kind of founded Virtuous with this idea that we could increase global generosity if we could just help nonprofits better connect with their donors. I love that. It's been a fun, fun to see. So when did you start Virtuous? And I think that Virtuous E, I have the perception that Virtuous evolved a little bit out of your agency business. And I think there's a, a lot of founders or prospective founders listening to this podcast that uh, are considering they're in a services business today. And so they develop knowledge about a, a particular industry and they want to turn that into a software company. So I'd love to hear about your, uh, the brush fire story and how that led into Virtuous. Yeah, absolutely. I always will recommend to people think about if you can do a services business and parlay that into product business. The reason is, is especially in a state like Arizona, sometimes the expectation is you're bootstrapping to like, I got to right. get a product and revenue. And if you're working 50 hours a week at Intel, just the idea of bootstrapping something on your nights and weekends without any money is really hard. But the cheat code is kind of, if you have a consulting business or a services business, you have a way to pay yourself, pay your mortgage, and then set aside good chunks of hours and money to start building, right? And so I, I had a consulting business, software business um, called Brushfire, and we actually, I had launched, Virtues is my second company that we had launched out of that consulting business, but it allowed us to build a minimum viable product, get a bunch of customers without actually going out and raising money first. And so I as a piece of advice for people thinking about that, the only hard part is shifting from a services mindset, like I get paid for an hour of work, to shifting to a product mindset of I'm going to scale something that's going to be more of a slow burn is, is a really hard shift to make. And so you almost have to do this magic where you can turn off your services consulting brain at noon every day and start thinking with a product SaaS brain for the remainder of the day, which is that's not trivial. And that's where a lot of the services companies that shift to product get stuck as they end up somewhere in the muddy middle between those two businesses. Oh, wow. That, that really resonates. My own Capistogic experience, we had a consulting business to pay the bills. And it wasn't until we actually shut the consulting business all the way off that we could lean into, like make the DNA of the company be about software. That is, that is a hard shift. I've seen people struggle to, to run both revenue models. Was that, how did you, how did you manage that transition, by the way? How did you, how did you transition out of brush fire and, and full time into, to, to, um, uh, to virtuous here? Yeah. Good question. You know, my first thing is we we're really a product company. We care deeply about product. And so the first employee of virtuous actually wasn't me. It was the head engineer at my consulting company where I, went to him one day and was like, I'm firing you from this consulting business. You're hired at this new company because we have to build great product and I need you focused on that. And so actually, I think I may have been the third employee of Virtuous. So I had to just play this game where for probably a year, I was wearing both hats of both companies while I was building the product company, which is long hours. It's a really hard grind, but the outcome of that approach gave us this product and customers without ever having to raise money. But yeah, it was, it was a bunch of balancing. I actually tried to hire a CEO to run the consulting business after I left. And I realized that I was still having to be really involved in that consulting business, having to do biz dev and eventually shut it down for the same reason that you probably shut yours down, which is it, it's just a distraction at some point. Yeah. What, what was paying the bills becomes a distraction when That's you right. start to inflect. 
Um, and I uh, think it's hard to know what point that is too. I do. I do too. Yeah, I experienced that with ubiquity and iris, and I didn't really know what is the point at which it, this is a distraction versus a necessity. How did yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, the hard part is that I mean, I don't think founders probably talk about actually what's going on financially in their personal lives nearly enough. We talk about it in really broad, abstracted terms. Absolutely. But the reality is like I had at the time four kids and a mortgage, right? And so when you work consulting, you do work and then you bill people on 15-day terms and then they pay their bills. And so there's this like real personal financial reality that as much as rah-rah people in the startup community want to sort of ignore that. That is a very real thing. So for me, it was, it was a very pragmatic decision of when can I get to a point where I'm not like putting my family at undue risk by shutting this thing down. And so it was far more, I'd like to, to have these like noble, like sort of business change the world reasons. But at a certain point, I knew that the transition had to come when my, my family was secure, if that made sense. Yeah. I want to hear about how capital, the capital raising journey fit into that. I remember the first time I met you was probably, uh, I don't know, four and a half, five years ago or so, maybe longer than that now. And uh, we're having breakfast uh, somewhere in Chandler, I think, Gilbert Chandler. And you, I asked you to start telling me about, uh, about Virtuous and you immediately start talking about the math of your of your business, which I like. I was smitten uh, right then with with you and Virtuous. Um, so two two questions. One, um, you'd already raised a seed round, I think, at that point, yep. and you were probably already full time in the business at that point. And then I think you were getting ready to raise a Series A at that point. But can you tell us a little bit about your capital raising journey, and then we'll come back to talk about the math of, of Virtuous here in a minute. Yeah. I think um, capital raising certainly got easier um, after, let's say, we passed a, a couple of million dollars in ARR, started approaching that number because at that point you're talking to primarily institutional capital, like venture capitalists that do this for a living and look at deals all day. And so once you move into that world, it's, it's weird to say that bigger checks get easier but it's mainly because the sophistication of the investors on that side is just, it's more, it's a more straightforward path. And more predictable. More predictable. Um, the hardest part for me was actually those seed rounds. And, and part of it was I had met several founders in the past that had taken um, really unsophisticated seed capital yes. from investors that didn't understand the business and probably at really bad terms, probably even, it gave up too much of their business or the capital was structured in a way where it, would, it created all these weird incumbencies on the business, which was really bad. And so I was super sensitive to that. So as I raised seed, I probably spent more time than I needed to, like vetting the who more than I vetted the how much, just because I wanted to make sure we had the right folks around the table. But ended up with, you know, let's say 15, maybe like sort of core seed investors across two different tranches of capital that we brought in. Like it was a lot of friends. I didn't do family because I knew it was going to be a roller coaster ride and I didn't want to invite my family on that roller coaster. Um, but um, friends that I knew had my back and as weird as it sounds, I knew they had enough money to where if they lost this money, 
it's not going to crush them. And yeah, that's a weird, st- it's a weird thing to say, but that's like that factored into like, I didn't want somebody to lose their house betting on my tech startup. Right? These were, these are sophisticated enough people to understand what they were investing in. That's right. But there was no, there was no, in your seed round, there was no lead investor, right? Um, this was probably more local angels. Is that, is that what the group was? And, local and angels friends and just friends from around the country that yeah. did uh, a lot of investing on the side. And yeah, some some local angel money, but you know, it ended up being great. And I kind of liked not having a lead. It sort of like disperses power, if that yep. makes sense. And so, as a founder, you still get to have some control over your business as long as you're doing the right things. And so, I didn't really have sort of a formal board until we started raising institutional capital, which worked out way better for me. So was that seed round? You were kind of post-revenue yes. when you took that seed money and you, you raised that money to, uh, to push a little more growth and build more product, but you were still way less than a million in revenue. Is that kind of where you yes. were when you raised that seed yeah, round? Yeah, I think the first time around we were, gosh, maybe 400, less than 400,000. No, the first one we were like maybe a hundred thousand. Second one, we were 400,000 in ARR. So we had enough validation. Like we could braid 10 happy customers in front of somebody and say, Hey, this is working. Something These people semi- have a good thing to say, you know, we get checks. And so we had sort of proven it certainly wasn't what I consider product market fit, but it was enough proof points for people to say, yeah, I'd, I'd place a bet on that. Let's take a short break here and hear from our sponsor, Arizona Venture Development Corporation. I'm here with Andy Lombard, president and CEO of Arizona Venture Development Corporation, sponsor of the Phoenix Founders Podcast. Andy, how are you doing today? Doing great, Greg. Good to have you here. Tell our audience a little bit about who AVC is and how you're bringing new capital sources to Phoenix. Thanks, Greg. And first of all, I'm honored to sponsor the podcast. We love what you're doing at Phoenix Forward. So AVC is a venture capital firm. We invest in both funds and direct investments. It has a unique thesis where we're focused totally on Arizona. And the main goal of our mission is to catalyze new private venture capital for the state of Arizona. We also have a priority on underserved founders when we can invest. And really over the long period is to aid economic development in the state. Love it. Back to our podcast. Can I, can I drill down on the product market fit question? What, you know, product market fit is an interesting concept. I mean, you're, you're in the 100 to 400K in revenue range. You've got 10 customers, but you still weren't sure you had product market fit. Yeah. And some people, I think some founders would think, hey, if I've got one customer and revenue, I think that's product market fit. So how do you think about product market fit? And what's the lesson for founders or prospective founders listening to the podcast? Yeah, I, for me, I have a much more strict and sober view of product market fit. Like I need a sizable cohort of customers to get through at least one renewal cycle. And those, and none of those customers can be people that I personally sold. So it's, it's a weird set of rules, but basically I need a salesperson who's not me, who sold a bunch of customers and I need them to renew at least one year because unless I know if they're going to renew, and they're going to renew not because they know me or there's a personal connection, but because there's like there was a workable go-to-market process. They used it for a year. They loved it so much. They're going to give us money again. Until that happens, I don't think you know if you have a thing. When did that happen for Virtuous? Uh, you know, before I really felt good about it, I bet we were three years into our journey before I really felt like we have a thing at this point. 
Yeah, that is, those are really powerful criteria and also an indication of kind of, I think the engineer, the engineer in you probably too, but yeah. you've got someone else who sold it, an indication this can be sold by somebody else and creates real value yep. for somebody. There are use, there's usage and there's renewal uh, and the customers themselves are unaffiliated. That's yes. a pretty good list of, of yeah. what, what it takes to get product market fit. So you raised a little bit of seed because you, you seemed like you had something that was repeatable, something that, on both the, the product development side, the sales side, and that. When did your, and what year was that? And, and then when did you raise your Series A? Oh, gosh, it must have been, well, I'm bad with years. We were at least a year and a half in after our founding before we raised any seed money. So maybe um, 2017, 2018? Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then uh, Series A, you probably know 2019? that better than it. 2019, yeah. Yeah, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, I should be asking you the questions of the timing of my raises. Burned in my, burned in my head, yeah. <laughs> uh, how'd the Series A come together? Um, you know, I um, it's hard as an Arizona founder because at if you're raising a Series B, all the Series B investors have data from Series A investors, so they know how to reach out to you, like they know that you're a thing. But at the Series A level, there's no good way for investors outside of Arizona to source those deals, right? There's like Crunchbase or whatever has limited data, and so you don't really know if somebody's been raising little seed rounds like I do, there's no good data point on that. And so it was more outbound for our Series A, I asked, a lot of people I knew on the coast or who'd raised before, hey, who do you know? Who have you seen? And uh, our lead investor, Math Ventures, I knew a couple of founders who had taken investments from them. And so created a connection with them, referenced the other founders I knew, and it was enough for them to take a look. I think for my Series A, I probably had realistic conversations with maybe only four or five investors. Like that's all that I could sort of mm. get in the vote boat to have a conversation with. And that's, it's hard for Arizona founders. That, that move right there is actually really hard. Like that sort of seed to series A, non-institutional to institutional, because you just, there's not the coverage here that founders need to get that exposure. Yeah, that's one of the reasons Phoenix Ventures recently raised this fund is I think there's an opportunity for institutional quality seed stage uh, fund and, and it does two things that you, that you mentioned. Uh, one, it creates more predictability for founders that it can raise a two to $3 million seed round. That, would, that was very hard to do five, six, seven years ago, yeah. uh, as you're pointing out. And then two, it does shine a spotlight for Series A investors. You know, we, we want to promote the companies we invest in so that uh, other people can come uh, see, the, see, see the great things that are being built here. But I do agree in markets like Phoenix, it's easy to overlook uh, or not, you just not see the, the great companies that are kind of percolating under yeah. the surface here. Yeah. Now, I do think that's changing. Even since we first started, you know, eight years ago, I think the market here has shifted a ton. Definitely. Because now you have all these great, in my opinion, great growth stage companies coming out of Phoenix. It kind of looks like, you know, a Salt Lake or an Austin did maybe a decade ago. And so now for the first time you see, you know, VC showing up at everything here because it's like something's happening in Phoenix. Love that. Gabe, you just said it eight years ago. Did you expect it to take eight years to get to this point? No, it always costs more and takes longer than you think. I think yeah. the, in my opinion, the number one quality of a founder is 
endurance and the ability to handle adversity because it's just never going to go the way that you think it's going to go, right? We had to learn a lot of lessons like growth in the early days, getting a go-to-market motion that actually worked was really hard. Getting trust customers to trust us and believe us was really hard. And so, no, it's, it's, it's always harder than you think. Now, looking back, like I think we've had a ton of success. I'm really proud of where we are now, but it is not ever this sort of straight up into the right line. Yeah. I think data is showing now the life cycle of an early, early stage software company is 8 to 12 years. Whereas when we were starting our companies, they were telling us, you, be, you better be out in five to seven, yeah. which, what pressure. Oh, yeah, I was in Campus Logic 10 years, and you know, we, didn't, we, didn't, we had great growth, but we certainly didn't get to the $100 million ARR mark. I think it takes 10 years to get anywhere in, uh, to build, especially in enterprise software. You've got a, there's a lot of things to figure out and build on the go-to-market side. So uh, what were some of those lessons for you looking back over, over that period of time? Um, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about your series B here in a minute here and, and how that that's, but when you look back to those early days, those series A days, what are some lessons you've learned in that period of time? So you're in the kind of million to $2 million ARR range at that point in time. What were some early lessons you learned that, uh, probably you didn't anticipate or things that surprised you, but you look back on that time and, and, and see some pretty valuable lessons. Uh, on the, Product front, I think for us specifically, we assumed that nonprofits would want to choose a bunch of different best-in-breed software and integrate it through our API. So they wanted, we thought they deserved best-in-breed software. And it turns out they, a lot of nonprofits don't really want that. They want one vendor to go to, one person to trust, one throat to choke, and they want you to solve multiple problems for them. And so we underappreciated that. I think the thing I learned from that is, I made a lot of, I, I worked in the nonprofit space for a while and I made a lot of assumptions based on my own personal experience, but it actually took me going out and talking to a lot of customers, sitting at a lot of conferences, you know, hanging out with a lot of prospects before it finally dawned on me, oh shoot, like the way we're thinking about this is wrong and it completely changed our product roadmap and how we built out from there forward. You learned that you were abnormal, which is why you started a that's right. Software company. Yeah, that's yes. right. I'm like, well, maybe all these other nonprofits didn't have like an entrepreneurial engineer mm-hmm. making all the decisions. And so, um, yeah, which was a hard lesson, right? It's a lesson about really listening to your customers. The other one was, um, I, I remember in the early days, and Greg, you've probably said stuff like this to me before too, which is as a CEO, you should spend a lot of your time focused on attracting and retaining great talent. And it, And when there's only 10 people on the team, you just don't think that's a big deal, right? Right. Because half the people you've hired where you're like Facebook friends or people you've known for 10 years, like this is easy, right? But like you pass this point where you run out of smart friends that are stupid enough to come work for you, right? (laughs) And and so that attracting and retaining great talent, I mean, I think we've made several missteps along the way and learned hard lessons. I think one of the hardest ones that especially for founders who have begun to scale that I know everybody's tripped on this is you think there's this unicorn out there, like, you know, the guy who used to be a VP at Twilio or something, and you get enamored with this person that you think because they've done it before, they're going to come in and be transformative to your business. And that's just like, that's not true most of the time. Right. The thing that's true is you need a, a smart person who gets your vision who's willing to dig in and understand your product and market. They're smart enough to figure things out. They're curious. 
like, and they want to win, right? And, and sometimes that person might have worked at Meta or Google or Twilio, but a lot of times they didn't. And if you start paying big salaries to somebody who's worked at some scaled up company thinking they're going to come in and solve problems at a $5 million tech company, you're just going to be really disappointed. Yeah. They have to be a stage fit, a personality fit, a values fit. Yes. All those, all those things are, are really hard. I, I do think that a lot of founders don't, don't anticipate the time burden of being the chief recruiting officer, like yes. you're describing. You can't have great culture without being heavily involved in the recruiting as a, as a founder CEO um, early on. You just have to, you have to do that, and it, is, it takes a ton of time. I know you spend a ton of time on that. A hundred percent. Even now, even now, right? Yeah, even now. I mean, I'll take calls, which probably from the outside looking in don't look like value add calls. I mean, why are you taking a call with this person or this person? And it's really like, I'm trying to create a pipeline of really smart people and now even really smart partners who I know are going to be incredibly valuable as we scale, either them or people that they know, right? And so it's a lot of this like just hard groundwork for stuff that may not materialize into your next VP of marketing or whatever. But it's, it's almost like you have to dedicate 30% of your job just to doing that, just so that you have a pipeline ready of really talented people. If you liked this episode, let us know and subscribe to hear more at phxfounders.com. Founders.com.